Good morning, and welcome to the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy's live weekly broadcast. I'm Roberta Oster, the Communications Director. Our show brings you insight and perspective from policy and faith experts, legislators, and community leaders. We focus on issues at the core of our mission, economic, racial, social, and environmental justice. We also share resources and opportunities for you to get involved in our work, advancing social justice and helping our neighbors. We keep you up to date and we keep our elected officials accountable. Today, we will address a critical issue that will be a top priority for the Interfaith Center during the upcoming 2021 General Assembly, the abolition of the death penalty. I'm very excited to introduce our experts today. Michael Stone is Executive Director of Virginians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Thank you for being here and welcome, Michael. And my colleague and friend, Reverend Dr. Lakeisha Cook, who is the Justice Reform Organizer for the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. And she's our moderator today. Lakeisha? Thank you so much, Roberta. We're so excited to be on the show this morning. We are very, very excited to have Michael Stone with us this morning from Virginians um, for Alternatives for the Death Penalty. Um, Virginia Interfaith is partnering with VADP to push forward to abolish the death penalty here in Virginia. And so we're excited to have him on the show with us and we wanna jump right into the question. So welcome again, Michael. So glad you're here. Um, we want to start out the conversation. Can you please share with us a brief history of the death penalty here in the state of Virginia? Well, it's a very long history. Um, as you know, that uh, the colony in Jamestown was established in 1607. And the first execution that was, that was documented took place just a year later when uh, one of the captains uh, was executed for being a spy for Spain, allegedly. And so since that time, Virginia has executed more people than any other state within our country. Um, it's close to 1400 in that period of time uh, that have been documented. And that history is really fraught with uh, racial violence. It's intimately intertwined in that history. You can't really talk about the death penalty in Virginia without talking about it as a means of instilling racial terrorism, both uh, legal executions as well as lynchings. Um, the modern era, well, one thing I do want to mention is that in the mid-1800s, uh, the Virginia legislature passed a law so that any African, anyone of African descent, could be executed for a crime that for a white person would entail three years or more in prison. So even in the law itself, uh, gross disparities in, uh, in its application among races and in, a, and in uh, one sense, um, that was why the US Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in the United States in 1973. It was, they found it unconstitutional for two reasons. Um, one is that 
there was no clear rhyme or reason distinguishing capital murder from non-capital murder. Um, the second was the massive racial uh, bias in its application. When the Supreme Court allowed it to resume in 1976, uh, they included a whole series of protections that were supposed to alleviate those problems. And they ameliorated them only to a certain extent. We still have um, problems of racial disparities in Virginia and the application of the death penalty. Before 1973, uh, the primary indicator of whether someone be, would be executed for a murder was, uh, was the race of the perpetrator. Since 1976, it's been race of the victim that really uh, determines it. In the modern era since 76, uh, we are second only to Texas in the number of executions that have been carried out, 113 in that period of time. And, but I think it's important to understand that today we're in a much, much different place than we were 20 years ago. I've been at this one way or another for uh, over 30 years. And back in the 90s, um, the Commonwealth would sentence to death 8, 10, 12 people a year. And in a sense, one, in one calendar year, I think we executed 12 or 13 people. So um, that was the height of the death penalty in the modern era. But we're in an entirely different uh, space now. Thanks to the extraordinary work of capital defense attorneys in this country, I mean, in this uh, state, um, there has not been a single person sentenced to death in nearly 10 years. And that death sentence was overturned by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, about a year and a half ago. So our death row only has two people on it, uh, both black men from the city of Norfolk. And uh, we're cautiously optimistic that both those deaths, death sentences are gonna be overturned uh, by the courts because of trial errors. So we'll have to wait and see. But as I say, we're really in an extraordinary place where we can really begin having a serious public policy discussion about abolition of capital punishment. Thanks so much, Michael. Um, can you share a little bit more about why you personally became involved in the work of abolition? Yeah, um, I moved to Virginia in 1984. Uh, to go to work for the Catholic Diocese of Richmond. Uh, I spent 25 years working in social ministry uh, for the Catholic Church. And it was a few months after I had moved here when Bishop Sullivan encouraged everybody on the diocesan staff to participate in an execution vigil. Uh, back then, death row was located at the uh, penitentiary, uh, which, is, which used to be on... Belvedere, um, just north of the river. Um, and it was this huge imposing uh, brick structure uh, that was built, actually designed by Thomas Jefferson. And at that time, it was just a, a miserable hellhole of a penitentiary. And death row was in the basement of one of the buildings there. So for execution vigils, there were about 40 of us standing on the east side of Belvedere silently holding candles. And on the other side of Belvedere were, the only thing I can say, um, 100, 125 drunken yahoos celebrating the death of this person who was gonna be executed. And that it was glaringly racist, signs uh, proclaiming uh, 
you know, kill the N-word um, and chance, let's fry another N-word. And it was a really visceral shock to experience that. And if I had any doubts about uh, the moral legitimacy of the death penalty, it evaporated in that moment. Uh, and I was thinking, if the death penalty can do that to us as a people, there's something profoundly wrong and evil about it as an institution. I want to say thank you for all the years that you have spent doing the work. Thank you so much for being so committed to abolishing the death penalty. Um, we know that there have been previous years when we've tried to pass, get bills passed to abolish the death penalty and it hasn't been successful. Um, what have been some of the obstacles um, that you've come up against in trying to get it abolished? In a previous era, um, the, the primary problem was a bipartisan embrace of a harsh attitude toward criminal justice, that any offender uh, was seen as maybe a little bit less than human, uh, someone who could be incarcerated in, uh, in, a ter in terrible conditions and you could throw away the key. And that mentality really drove criminal justice in the Commonwealth um, for many, many years. And again, it was fully embraced in a bipartisan way. Um, and that era, thankfully, has slowly changed over time. That, um, and it's been bipartisan, not just Democrats, that uh, Republicans have increasingly turned from the death penalty uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, cost being one, and um, the uh, how long the legal process takes that it re-victimizes victim family members. And finally, that um, the resources could be better spent uh, that are poured into our death penalty system. So there's been a really interesting shift in both parties uh, away from the death penalty, certainly in a more pronounced way in the Democratic Party, but uh, certainly among Democrats, I mean, upon, uh, Republicans, independents, and libertarians as well. So it's a very different political era, and that's the primary reason. And really, the only reason left for supporting the death penalty is a really primitive uh, argument that the SOBs deserve to die. And that's really the only argument left, uh, retribution. Well, I can tell you as a woman of faith and as people of faith, we believe wholeheartedly in human dignity. We believe in redemption. And we believe that this year we are going to abolish the death penalty. We're going to be successful this year. We are. Um, so why do you believe, because you've already shared some things about the way we have seen uh, politics kind of, kind of shift. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some other reasons you think that we will help us in becoming successful this year? Well, the, uh, the political shift, I think, has been reflected in public opinion. I mean, our political leaders tend to reflect where uh, the electorate is. And over time, um, the electorate has shifted slowly away from the death penalty. Uh, and I think it's been, been due to some extraordinary work, particularly by one group of people, um, death row exonerees. Uh, since 1976, 
172 people who were once sentenced to death were later found innocent during the lengthy appellate process. And if you compare the number of exonerations to the number of people executed, uh, we, there's been one person exonerated from death row for every nine executions that have been carried out. That's a pretty shocking rate, air rate of 10%. And there have been many executions that have been carried out around the country, including Virginia, where there were serious doubts about the guilt of the person who was eventually put to death. And so um, that I think, and that the people who've been exonerated from death row have organized and have uh, spoken very loudly, very clearly, repeatedly across the country, educating the public about how flawed our criminal justice system is and that the death penalty is the one punishment that is absolutely irreversible. And so uh, I think that witness by those very brave uh, men and women um, has really uh, moved uh, the electorate, public opinion, and our faith leaders. Michael, who do you, who are some of our greatest champions um, at this point in the General Assembly um, in regards to abolition of the death penalty? Um, in the Senate, uh, there are a lot of champions. Uh, uh, Scott Servell from Northern Virginia is going to be uh, the chief patron of our abolition bill. But for many years, uh, Janet Howell, Louise Lucas have all been very outspoken in their opposition to the death penalty. And more recently, uh, Republican Bill Stanley has joined the chorus of voices uh, opposing capital punishment. And he's going to be the chief co-patron of the bill in the Senate. He really adds a very strong conservative voice to the push for abolition in Virginia. On the House side, um, some of the people who've been in recent years most vocal uh, would be uh, Marcus Simon. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some people. Um, uh, the members of the Legislative Black Caucus have for a long time, uh, been clear opponents of the death penalty. Um, and uh, it looks like we're getting more and more support from leadership in the House of Delegates for an abolition push in 2021. Um, and it, uh, we're not sure which of them is, are going to be the chief patron. Uh, that's still being uh, talked about behind closed doors. Um, but we're confident we're going to have somebody very prominent in leadership uh, on the Democratic side, uh, being the chief patron in the House of Delegates. And we know of at least one uh, Republican delegate who has pledged uh, to vote against, uh, to vote for death penalty abolition. And we're hoping uh, we have several more meetings scheduled via Zoom in the coming weeks, where we're hoping to add a few more Republican uh, votes to make it bipartisan in both the House and the Senate. So as we're moving into um, getting prepared for the next session in January, what are some of the new strategies that we're using um, to galvanize support, to educate people? Um, what are some new things that we're trying? Well, I think the primary uh, thing we're trying to do is to raise up uh, prominent voices. And, uh, and in the abolition movement, we have uh, what we call unlikely allies. 
people that you would not expect to support death penalty abolition. And uh, those include murder victim family members. Mm -hmm. It includes prosecutors and other members of law enforcement. And it includes uh, conservatives. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were going to be working very hard in the coming weeks and months into the legislative session, trying to raise up those voices through uh, op-eds uh, and through press events um, in the coming weeks. So um, what we are trying to do is to show that opposition to the death penalty is just not the usual liberal suspects, um, that it includes people who prosecute murders. It includes uh, family members of those who've uh, been victims of homicide. It includes Republicans and libertarians. So um, again, I think those voices are very, very important to lift up in the public. And it, I think, provides cover for uh, moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats who might be afraid to cast a very difficult abolition vote. And just to add to the strategies, um, some of the things that Interfaith is doing um, mm -hmm. are definitely, as always, um, seeking to educate um, on this particular topic um, because we're all about learn, pray, and act. So we want people to learn about um, death penalty abolition. And so we're reaching out and giving out information. Um, we are trying to galvanize support specifically in the African-American faith communities. And so we have a clergy sign-on letter that we're trying to get support on with not just from African-American clergy, but faith leaders all throughout the state um, so that we can show that we are in support of abolishing the death penalty. We're going to do prayer vigils um, at the lynching sites, several throughout the state. Um, so we are trying our best to make sure that we're getting the word out so that people be can become in the fight to abolish the death penalty. So we're so excited again to be working with VADP as this is very important work. Um, so as we're gearing up and getting ready for January, um, we know that there will be some obstacles that might pop up. So what do you think some of the biggest obstacles might be? What do you foresee as some of our biggest challenges that we'll have going into January? Well, uh, certainly there are old guard members of the legislature who are still firmly wed to the law and order perspective. Um, the Democratic uh, leader in the Senate, Dick Sasslaw, has been for decades an outspoken supporter of the death penalty. Um, the way he puts it, I'm damn proud of being the author of uh, the death penalty statute in Virginia. Um, Chap Peterson is another prominent uh, Northern Virginia uh, senator who has made clear his opposition to the death penalty, um, as well as a number of um, Republican uh, legislators. So we have that old guard who hold on very tightly to that old law and order mentality. And that's probably going to be our primary um, obstacle. Um, though I think uh, even a couple of Democrats we've had uh, conversations with since the election, um, a couple have expressed their concern about how a law and order approach seems to have been behind the defeat of a number of member, Democratic members of the U.S. House of Representatives in the most recent election. And a number of them are very worried uh, that, um, about the criminal justice reform wave and how that might uh, be used against them in a re-election campaign. Because again, in Virginia, we have an election every year. 
the federal elections uh, in even years and the state level elections in odd numbered years. And next year, I remember the House of Delegates is going to be up for re-election, as well as um, the three statewide offices. So um, I know a number of members of the House of uh, House of Delegates uh, on the Democratic side are nervous. Um, those that are in purple districts um, that had close races, um, I think it's going to be hard to convince them to exhibit uh, some political courage and to continue to push for criminal justice reform by abolishing the death penalty. I think what you have said um, brings up a really good question and point. Um, some people see the death penalty as a stance, keeping it as being um, tough on law or tough on crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that points to some of the misconceptions of the death penalty. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions that people have about yeah. the death penalty and how it truly impacts um, a community? Okay. Um, I'd say the primary one is that popular culture has created this uh, CSI mythology that in every crime, there's an abundance of DNA evidence and other evidence that can absolutely 100% tie um, the uh, perpetrator to the crime scene. And, um, and that's just uh, a load of hooey that um, data has shown that in murder cases, DNA evidence is available in maybe 10, 15% of those cases. And even in those cases, there have been uh, scandals of crime labs. Uh, there was a huge uh, scandal in the FBI crime lab that came out a couple years ago about how uh, forensics experts testified that hair evidence uh, pointed 100% to um, uh, the perpetrator tying them to the crime scene. And it was just bogus science, uh, wildly exaggerating uh, the science. And a number of those uh, people who uh, the FBI crime lab testified against were later found innocent through other DNA evidence. So, and there have been multiple uh, examples in other states. And there's a very prominent case of Keith Harward here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He was a sailor uh, convicted of rape and capital murder in Newport News uh, decades ago. Uh, he was uh, convicted of capital murder basically on two pieces of evidence. Number one, um, the testimony of a um, gate guard at the um, naval installation who changed his testimony after going under hypnosis. Um, his testimony and then the testimony of two bite mark, uh, uh, two forensic experts saying that the bite mark left on the rape victim could have only been left by Keith Harward. And um, what was later found out um, that DNA evidence uh, later surfaced and it excluded him from uh, the crime and he was exonerated. But one of the things that they found in the discovery process, uh, looking into the prosecutor's files was that there was a simple blood test at the time that was carried out by the forensics lab. In, I don't know if it was a state lab or a local lab in Newport News. And uh, the expert said that that blood uh, 
test tied Keith Harward to the crime, when in fact the lab notes excluded him as being the wrong blood type to have carried out the crime. So you have a forensics experts, two experts wildly exaggerating evidence and another lying. And that cost Keith Harward 32 years in the penitentiary. He was only exonerated a few years ago after relentless media coverage um, that brought his, uh, the injustice of that case to light. So, um, yeah, again, the CSA, CSI mythology is a very, very big problem that we have to overcome. And again, the innocence issue is the other thing that really drives uh, this is that, you know, we have an error rate that looks like 10% at least in getting the wrong person and you cannot reverse uh, a wrongful execution. Right. Keith at least could uh, be released from prison and given uh, money so that he would never have to work again. I mean, he now lives in an RV and goes wherever he damn well pleases day to day. Uh, yeah. He's uh, the ultimate free man. Right. Well, again, we're grateful for those who are tuning in and watching us. There's a question um, that a viewer has. Um, why should average law-abiding citizens um, or people care about this? So well, why? The number one is that, do you want to put innocent people in prison and execute them? I, mean, I don't think any rational law-abiding person would want to see that kind of injustice perpetrated on a fellow citizen. Um, in addition, I talk about the collateral damage of the death penalty, that people don't think about it, but every person who's part of the death penalty machinery here in the Commonwealth, there's a toll exacted on them. Um, the defense attorneys who have the lives of the clients in their hands, imagine the incredible psychological pressure that brings to bear on those men and women. Um, especially if the person is executed, um, you, know, you know, thinking, could I have done something differently to have saved this person's life? Uh, that's a horrible burden to bear, much less the people who have to carry out the executions. Right. Uh, Jerry Gibbons was the chief executioner in Virginia and executed 62 people. He was a devout Baptist. And he came to see later that, uh, the way he put it, only God has the power to take life. And he became a, a very outspoken opponent of the death penalty, um, traveled the country uh, speaking, and he joined together with a number of other former executioners to talk about the trauma that they've experienced. Many of them on psychiatric medication, uh, many of them talking about how the people that they executed come to them in dreams. Um, just a terrible burden to bear. Um, and then there are the, the jurors. Um, there's one man uh, that uh, I came to know from Northern Virginia. He was in the jury pool uh, for the one uh, person involved in the 9-11 terrorist attacks who actually went to trial, uh, a federal capital murder case in Northern Virginia. He was one of the 12 deciding that fate. And he came into the trial um, a supporter of the death penalty, but he was so angered and appalled by the behavior of the prosecutor who was relentless in exploiting uh, 
the emotions of the jurors in an attempt to not only get a uh, guilty verdict, but to get a death sentence. And he was uh, one of only two people to vote against uh, execution in that case. And, uh, you know, he talks about the, the tremendous psychological toll that took on him. Talked about how for the whole jury, they had this huge bowl of ibuprofen on the, uh, in the jury room. And that how they kept popping uh, them to just deal with the immense psychological pressure of being on a jury in a capital murder case. So there are a lot of people who have been damaged by this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, most people don't give them a thought, but uh, the damage is real. And it just makes no sense uh, to continue this uh, crazy system. Right. So does the death penalty help deter crime? All the evidence says no. Um, there was a prominent national social science organization. Um, I forget the name of it, uh, but they did a comprehensive analysis of all the studies done um, around deterrence in the death penalty. And that um, they found that there were serious method methodological issues in all of them. The vast majority of them showed no effect of any kind. There were a handful that showed a very short temporary effect in certain, in certain localities. But the, uh, but the organization concluded that, that there were so many factors you couldn't control for that there was really no, uh, no way to know for sure whether uh, there was. Um, but I think what's more telling is that uh, there was a national organization that polled police chiefs every year about crime and punishment and prevention. And one question that they gave every year to uh, police chiefs were to rank about 15 uh, factors in what they thought uh, would reduce violent crime. And every single year, the death penalty was dead last in the listing of those police chiefs. And finally, if you look at uh, murder rates and capital uh, in states that have the death penalty versus those that don't, you pretty consistently have lower murder rates in states without the death penalty. So if it was uh, deterrent, you would think it would be the opposite, that murder rates would be lower in states with the death penalty. So, yeah, so this is really the deterrent argument just is not there. And anybody who says it is, is willfully uh, turning a blind eye to all the evidence. So we have another question from Nancy Morrison. Um, she asked, are there statistics on the cost of keeping someone on death row versus the cost of life in prisons? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. There has not been a comprehensive study done here in the Commonwealth, but there have been ones done for many other of the death penalty states, North Carolina, Kansas, California, um, Connecticut, and each and every one of them shows that the costs are higher in uh, for uh, trying and carrying out executions versus uh, 40 plus years of life in prison without parole. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but for, if you understand the extraordinary protections that the US Supreme Court built in to uh, the system in order to keep 
the problem of innocent people uh, from being uh, executed, you can see where those costs come from. In a normal murder case, uh, the trial ends when there's a guilty or innocence uh, decision by the jury, and then a sentence is imposed by the jury or the judge. In death penalty cases, um, the finding of guilt is only the first stage in the legal process. At that point, a second trial then begins where the jury, the same jury weighs evidence uh, of aggravating factors versus mitigating factors and tries to weigh those and to determine if the death penalty is warranted. And so if you add in all the extra costs of uh, that second trial, um, the mandatory appellate process, the court costs, the jury costs, uh, the cost to the prosecution, the cost of the defense uh, team, um, it, it adds into the millions. Um, it's extraordinarily expensive. So as we're wrapping up, um, if someone wants to get involved in the abolition fight, how can they get involved in the fight? Well, um, at the bottom of the screen, you see how people can sign up with the Interfaith Center and to advocate. Um, you can also go to VADP.org and join our organization. We'll keep you apprised of developments. Uh, we have a um, an action alert loaded on our website that we're planning on launching sometime in the coming weeks uh, to uh, flood our uh, dele state delegates and state senators uh, to let to have constituents tell them that uh, 2021 is the year to end the death penalty. So that's the most important thing. And if you have more energy, pick up the phone and call your legislators, uh, call their legislative offices. Uh, leave a message. You'd be surprised that there are times where if you do, you'll get a call back from your state senator or your delegate. And I've had members of the ADP tell me that they've had 30, 40 minute long conversations about the death penalty with their elected officials. Um, yeah, get involved. And But the most important thing is talk to your legislators uh, by uh, email, even better letter, best yet telephone. Yes. So for more information, you can always go to VADP's website. You can absolutely go to Virginia Interface website. You can um, sign up for our newsletter so you can get our email blast that comes out that will share valuable information. Michael, you have been a joy to talk to as always. Um, I know we could talk abolition all day long. Um, we are excited because we feel the momentum and we believe wholeheartedly that we are going to pass abolition. And so we want to say thank you again, Michael, for joining us on today. Thank you so very much. Um, we want to thank all those who joined us and were viewing um, the show with us for making comments and submitting questions. We appreciate you so much. Um, we, again, encourage you to visit, visit our websites to get more information and join us again when we come back on Virginia Interfaith Live um, on next Thursday. So we say thank you again, and we want everyone to have a wonderful rest of your day.